Coming up on Tech Nation, Catherine Corcoran, the former Associated Press Bureau Chief in Mexico City. She talks about the danger of being a journalist in Mexico and one woman who paid the ultimate price. Her book is In the Mouth of the Wolf. And you've heard the news of one biotech firm trying to de-extinct the dodo bird based on DNA found in a specimen in Denmark? Well, it's not the only dodo in town. Blue Water Vaccines is supporting the decoding of the Oxford dodo, discovered while pursuing its quest to develop a universal flu vaccine. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2018, I was able to speak with Dr. Leslie Saxon, a professor of medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, about the question of who owns a professional athlete's data. I started out by asking, how would she define an athlete's data? I think the athlete's data is pretty much anything that's recorded off an athlete, meaning off their body or anything that's recorded because of an athlete's action. So you could think about that latter category as point scored or a player tracking system that may track an athlete across the field. And you could think of the former as a sensor the athlete might be wearing that will provide information as to their heart rate or their explosiveness or their sleep. And we're having more and more of these sensors so we're getting a bigger, bigger picture of, of athletes in performance. We are. And, and I think while that's good, it's still the Wild West kind of unregulated days of putting sensors on athletes and trying to measure stuff. There hasn't been any one product yet. I don't think that an athlete or a team can't live without. And that reflects the sort of where we are. A lot of the sensors um, don't work particularly well, either in training or play or one or the other. Um, they're not what I would call medical grade. Many don't show you the real data. It's a correlation. So, for instance, take take a watch, take an activity watch. That measures your pulse, right? But it does so indirectly through through a light source. So that's not a direct EKG. That's a direct measure. So as we get better and better with the sensors and as regulated companies who actually make this stuff and are developing wearable product lines get into the space, we'll start to be able to trust the data and I think once we can trust the data, and because most of the data is wireless and digital, once we know the data is secure, because that's another important piece of this, the cybersecurity, then we can treat the data like the athlete's health record. But the space is so immature that and developed so rapidly that there's not even any governance of the data, either from a bioethical standpoint uh, or others. So, for instance, in medicine, we have ethics boards and we have the FDA and we show that stuff is safe and effective and applied to the right people. None of that exists in sports. So it's all being sorted out, which makes it very exciting, but also makes it a little bit too early to have yielded that product I talked about. When I look at football players, everybody's looking at all the, the, the games, they're looking at statistics, they're looking at, at any number of things that we could just call athlete data, and yet these are paid professionals. Is it clear who owns the data? It's not. In, in my opinion, it, it's sort, it's, first of all, a lot of the problem sets are similar with patients, but in my opinion, 
the patient owns the data and the athlete owns the data because guess what? It's their data. And particularly serial data and data that you collect over time, because to get actionable insights from this data, you have to kind of baseline players, figure out what their normals are, and then start to collect data. And, you know, you can imagine being able to have data season after season that you can kind of see how much treads off your tires, how you're rehabilitating, things like that. The, the holy grail of this, right, is to be able to neither undertrain or overtrain a player and to be able to develop predictive analytics before an injury happens or think about football before a concussion happens. Once a concussion happens, you're down that road, uh, a dangerous road, right? If you can get measures before a concussion happens or a non-contact injury or a potential more serious health event, that's when I think you'll provide real value. The other challenge to this field, and we work in the military as well, that's a fascinating problem, is you have to deliver the data at multiple levels. You have to deliver it to the athlete. You have to deliver it to the coach. You have to deliver it to the team trainer, to the front office, and potentially to the league in the same way you have to deliver it to a soldier, um, a company commander, a platoon commander, you know, a battalion commander, a general. Each one of those wants different things and needs different things. So um, there are many challenges in the area, but I think the table stakes are really accurate sensors. Dr. Leslie Saxon is a professor of medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at USC and executive director of the USC Center for Body Computing. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Catherine Corcoran, the former Associated Press Bureau Chief for Mexico and author of In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. Then in biotech, recent news of Colosso Biosciences' intent to bring back the dodo bird based on a centuries-old Denmark specimen. It reminded me of my 2021 interview with Blue Water Vaccines' Joe Hernandez. While today Blue Water is working on many vaccines and vaccine technologies, Joe's search to develop a universal flu vaccine inadvertently led him to the Oxford Dodo. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Catherine Corcoran. Well, Catherine, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you very much. It's so nice to be here. Now, you had worked for the Associated Press, the AP, in a number of places for many years, and in Mexico for AP uh, for several years before you became the Associated Press Bureau Chief, a job you would have for five years. But on the very first day of your role as Mexico Bureau Chief, you were awakened at 6 a.m., and the news agency itself had been threatened by a drug cartel. Take it from there. Yes, it was my very first day. I was thinking about something completely different on how that day would go. And of course, that phone call threw everything up into the air. 
From there, I needed to talk to several um, AP offices, including New York, where the headquarters is, and uh, Buenos Aires, where my supervising editor was, and um, London. And so we had several phone calls going back and forth and, and text messages. And my main message to them at the time was, we have to take this seriously. They, um, the AP depends on the bureau chief to know the region and to be the advisor in a situation like that. And because I had been in Mexico for two years prior, I saw the explosion of attacks on journalists and I knew that this could not be treated as a hoax or a wait and see. We had to respond as if it were real, even before we knew whether it was or not. And we did. Um, there were measures taken immediately to protect the Bureau and to protect the person who uh, received the message. But what was most disturbing, or I mean, it was disturbing on every level, but the message contained the address of the AP Bureau. And so essentially put the entire office at risk. And the AP Bureau office in Mexico City is a regional office. It has all the support staff, the HR, the tech people. It's not just journalists. And so it was something where we had to act quickly and, and securely for everyone involved. In fact, you write, I had already worked in Mexico for two and a half years, and I know the press there was under siege. It is the most dangerous country in the world to be a journalist outside of a war zone. Mexico is the most dangerous country for journalists. Okay, we're listening. Yes. When I arrived in Mexico, the attacks on journalists had already started. They started around 2006, and I came in 2008. And the numbers were six, seven, ten a year. And to me, they were astonishing because there was no reaction. Everyone kind of acted like that was normal or that was okay. And the government's explanation for it was that these journalists were corrupt and that they were working for drug cartels and that's what got them killed. And the narrative was, was very strong and it was very effective because Mexico had a history of corruption in the press corps. Um, the press in Mexico for many decades was controlled by the ruling party. The country was controlled by a single party authoritarian rule that also controlled the press. And so reporters were often paid and given gifts and, and various things on the side to make sure that they only wrote good news and only wrote the official report. And so when the government would say, oh, these journalists, they're not real journalists, they're corrupt. It was an easy narrative to put out based on the history of the press in Mexico. But the press had been changing. The country had become a democracy electorally in the year 2000. And with that development from authoritarianism to democracy, the press had also opened up and become more and more critical, including to this day. The, the press in Mexico has, um, has professionalized and become independent in a dramatic way over the last 10 to 15 years. And so, but initially the narrative worked because people thought, oh yeah, the press just is a mouthpiece of whoever will pay them the highest price. It makes it very complicated 
to look at these cases because the phenomenon of narco-journalists did exist and does exist, but if you look at the numbers, in no way can you say that all of those cases are narco-journalists. But that's what the government wanted to say, and they repeated it, and people believed it. And I even had colleagues, um, other foreign correspondents in Mexico who would say, would repeat it, oh, they're not, they're not journalists. The focus of your book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, is about an incident about a journalist and what followed it. Uh, the incident occurred on April 28, 2012, uh, 10 years ago at this interview, with the murder of Regina Martinez. Who was Regina Martinez and what facts were known at the time? Regina Martinez was a reporter ahead of her time because when she started her career in the 1980s, it was the era when the press was controlled by the government, but she never was. She started out from the very beginning as a reporter who wouldn't print the official story without verifying it. She wanted to verify things. She went out and talked to people. She wanted to know what was really going on. And of course, by doing that and being one of the few reporters at the time to do it, she uncovered a lot of stories, a lot of controversial stories that the powers that be did not want printed. But she was fortunate enough to work for a new local newspaper where the editor did want to print those stories. And so she was what they call an uncomfortable reporter from the very beginning of her career and her interests, her drive, she was very driven. She was very um, strict in her own rules and her ethics and her standards. And she was very driven by particular themes. And one, and one big one was um, social justice issues and marginalized groups of people. And so she gave voice to the people who weren't covered by the press in those days, like um, indigenous communities, laborers, women, uh, poor people, uh, landless peasants, as they were called, um, you know, people working in the campos, farm workers, and the people who basically were being abused in some way or another by the government. And so those stories, those controversies led her to covering government corruption. Because what she discovered in a lot of these cases, if the government was running um, indigenous people off their land, or if there was some kind of natural disaster and the people were living in the streets without homes or the schools had no roofs on them, that it was the government that was basically taking the money for something else. And the something else was always to keep the single party in power. There was a lot of corruption, a lot of stolen elections. And so she definitely saw a relationship between those two things. And those became her themes, the giving voice to the voiceless and explaining how the government had failed these marginalized groups of people. I think what is hard to figure out in some ways is just when did the cover-up begin? Because within a week of her death, three more journalists were killed brutally in Veracruz. The cover-up 
And here I'm speculating that the cover-up probably began before she was even murdered. The people who were behind this obviously knew that it was going to be, it was going to be a big event and it was going to make a lot of noise. So they had to be ready. And then the, the evidence of the cover-up came out almost immediately after her body was found because there were postings online almost immediately saying this had nothing to do with her work, which is kind of odd because there wasn't even time to open an investigation. And I believe two days later, it's in the book, the state attorney general called a press conference saying the motive was robbery. And again, after two days of, of investigation, how would you know enough to call a press conference and try to make that the conclusion of the case? So it, the cover-up became, it, the cover-up was immediate. The killing of the other three journalists was completely coincidental that that case had nothing to do with the Regina Martinez case uh, in terms of who was behind it. But it obviously had everything to do with the Regina Martinez case because four journalists had been murdered in a single week in the same state, something you don't even find in a, in a war zone. I, I can't think of a case, say, if, if, if a group of journalists is hit by um, some kind of shrapnel or some kind of event in a war, I've never even heard of four of them dying, maybe one or two. Um, and so it was so unprecedented and so mind boggling that that really became the story for the rest of the world, the international press and even the national press is, you know, this was completely out of control. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Catherine Corcoran, the former Associated Press Bureau Chief for Mexico and Central America. You may have read her columns in the Washington Post and the Houston Chronicle. To list some of her many credentials, she's been a visiting lecturer at UC Berkeley and a staff writer at the San Jose Mercury News. She's here today within the mouth of the wolf, a murder, a cover-up, and the true cost of silencing the press. The title, In the Mouth of the Wolf, it's a Spanish idiom, La Boca del Lobo. What does it mean? Well, in English, we would more likely say in the lion's den. And it means that you're walking around in a place where there's a huge danger hanging over your head. As if so you're in the mouth, the mouth hasn't closed yet, but by the fact that you're in the mouth is you're, you're wandering around in danger. And Rahina and all of the journalists were in the mouth of the wolf. Yes, that was the expression they used. Uh, and when I heard it for the third time, that's when it, I said to myself, that's going to be the title of the book. Because not only does necessarily refer to a location, although there was clearly a location in this story, it refers to a situation that you're walking around in. And the situation that these journalists were working in was one of, they were being monitored, they were being spied on, they um, were being harassed and intimidated, they were receiving threats, 
all with the idea to get them to stop doing what they were doing. And so there, it was well known and talked about that if you wanted to go into a place like Veracruz, where Regina was a reporter and do the kind of work that she was doing, you were going to attract that kind of behavior. And that's what they referred to as being in the mouth of the wolf. Now, I want people to understand that you just didn't sit in your office uh, at the Associated Press and say, oh, this is an interesting story. Let's write this up. Well, after you left and for a number of years, you've been personally investigating this. Yes, I have to say that the reason I chose this case out of so many other cases or just dozens, tragically, was because it was so clear in this case that Regina was killed for her work and that there was a cover up. So they couldn't use the normal narrative of, oh, she was a narco journalist because everyone knew that she wasn't. Everybody knew the kind of work that she did. And so for that reason, the case lived in the back of my head while I was still bureau chief and really didn't have the time to invest to find out what really happened. So I started after and I had to be from the very beginning because I knew about the mouth of the wolf and she had been murdered and other reporters had been threatened and many fled for their safety. I, I really had to plan out ahead of time how I was going to do this because I had to be there, but I had to figure out a way to be there in the most anonymous under the radar way so that I wouldn't trigger this system, the system that was monitoring and spying and intimidating. And um, I had to have uh, security protocols and I had to have people monitoring, monitoring my whereabouts. And um, it, it was a, a big part of the story that I had to plan how to do it. And, and probably the most difficult part of the story because I didn't it was very dangerous for people to talk to me and I didn't want to expose them and I didn't want to uh, put them in harm's way in any way. Well, people were afraid to talk and I, I can't imagine how you get people to talk who are afraid to talk or don't want to talk or are more than happy to give you some story that is, you know, safe because it's, it's part of the cover up, whether they meant to be part of it or not. Um, but uh, one vignette, to give a clue, to give a clue about how to ask questions without getting people in trouble, let's talk about one small vignette. And you were seeking out Mariella the seamstress and handed her a piece of paper. Describe who Mariella is, why you were trying to talk to her, and, and what you did. Mariella was a person who's, dis who's known in in Veracruz at the time as an oreja. That's, a, that's the, um, the Spanish word for ear, and it means a spy, a government spy. And she, but she was part of a system that the government had to, um, where, where everyone knew who the government monitors were. And they kind of operated in a public way that she would actually be sent by the government to cover events and cover protests so that, and she would note for the government, she would, she would make her own report, almost like a reporter and say, how many people were there? What reporters were there? Who was covering it? Basically what was going on. 
And that was actually an official role for the state at the time. And um, so everyone knew what she did for a living and everyone was um, careful about what they said around her. But she had a, a sewing business on the side. And so she made clothing, she made women's clothing and she um, had a pretty good business of it because she worked for the state government and knew a lot of people and knew a lot of women. So she'd make clothes for um, the governor's wife. She told me she was very proud of that and some, uh, you know, members of Congress or, and, and for reporters. And she was, she hung around the group of women reporters and the, the women pretty much figured she was trying to get information, but she also got a lot of business. And Rahina was very small of stature and had a hard time finding clothes that would fit her in a regular department store. So she had her clothes made oftentimes. And so she forged a relationship with Mariela, even though she knew what she did for a living. They were friendly and she would ask her to buy clothes, I mean, make clothes. And she, and also Mariela sold products she sold products like hair products and creams and perfumes uh, for for women. So Rahina had a, a friendly relationship with her. And the other women kind of wondered why Rahina was so friendly to a spy. And one of them even asked her at one point, and she said, well, she's trying to, you know, she's a woman who's from a humble background, who's trying to make a better life and trying to get her kids through school. And I have no problem supporting that. And she was, you know, that was something that Rahina really felt strongly about. So no one really thought much about Mariella until after Rahina was murdered. And they wondered if she had been feeding information to the people behind the crime. And so I wanted to know that, obviously. And people told me that she was uh, very well connected in the government and, um, and, and kind of a um, sort of a shadowy figure. And there was a rumor that she also carried a pistol. And, um, and so in my planning of how to report this story, I wanted to go to people like Mariella at the end because I knew as soon as she knew what I was doing, there was a chance that that would go out to all the sources that she was spying for. And so, um, so after I felt that I had everything in hand that I needed to in the event that um, somehow my access was shut down or, or I was run out of town for some reason, um, I, I decided to try to find her and it turned out that, and I asked people who I'd been interviewing, does anyone have a phone number for her? And they said, no, we see her around, but we're not really in touch anymore. And it turned out, and this is sort of the magic of reporting and what they always teach you in journalism school, never forget to check the phone book. And obviously there's not a phone book anymore, but it's online. And it turned out that she was very easy to find. She was in the in the online directory with her address. And so just to give you a picture of the report, the kind of reporting, I, did, I couldn't just go knock on her door. I've been speaking with Catherine Corcoran. Her book is In the Mouth of the Wolf.
a murder, a cover-up, and the true cost of silencing the press. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of the Tech Nation program and the standalone biotech segments are available through your favorite podcaster. Click through on technation.com or biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, founder and CEO Joe Hernandez talks about blue water vaccines and its effort to develop its first vaccine, a universal flu vaccine, and a side story which includes a real live, or rather real dead, and seriously extinct dodo bird. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Catherine Corcoran, the author of In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. I asked people who I'd been interviewing, does anyone have a phone number for her? And they said, no, we see her around, but we're not really in touch anymore. And it turned out, and this is sort of the magic of reporting and what they always teach you in journalism school, never forget to check the phone book. And obviously there's not a phone book anymore, but it's online. And it turned out that she was very easy to find. She was in the, in the online directory with her address. And so just to give you a picture of the, the kind of reporting, I, do, I couldn't just go knock on her door. That's what I would normally do is just go knock on her door. And I, but I was asking other other journalists and, you know, how, what's the best way to do this? And they said, don't do that because she will be startled. She won't give you anything. Um, and also, again, I was, if she was going to turn out to be a friendly source, I was worried about exposing her. Um, I didn't know if she was going to be friend or foe. And if she w wanted to talk to me, I would have exposed her by showing up at her door. And so I tried several ways to reach her through people who knew her. And she said, absolutely not. She would not talk to me through these other people. Uh, she said that her phone was being monitored, that her home was being monitored, that it would affect her work and her job. And she sent that message through uh, two different people. And I just decided at that point 
My only option was to show up at her door because she knew I was looking for her. It wouldn't be a surprise. Um, but I also, if she was really being monitored, I also didn't want to um, put her in danger. And so when I knocked on her door and she answered, I said, for whoever might have been watching or listening, that I was looking for a seamstress. And um, the other thing that people need to know, because Hollywood shows reporters as tricking people and disguising ourselves all the time, we do not do that. It is completely unethical. And if I did that at the Associated Press, I would have been fired. So we always have to say who we are and what we're doing. And so in this particular case, even though I said I was looking for a seamstress, I did not want to mislead her about who I was. And so the way to do that was to hand her a piece of paper. I said, I'm looking for a seamstress and I would like some clothing and here are the measurements. And I handed her a piece of paper and so she opened the piece of paper and it was a note and it said, I'm Kathy Corcoran, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a writer working on a book, I'm a journalist and I wanna to talk to you about Regina Martinez. And so in that way, I felt like I could at the same time protect her and let her know, not violate any ethics and not pretend I was someone who I wasn't. And so she read the note and she looked up at me and she said, what do you wanna know? <laughs> Good work, Kathy. Good work. <laughs> and I, there were several instances like that where I wanted to talk to people without exposing them. And one, one of the big ones, and you'll see in the, in the book, was when I went into Regina's neighborhood to talk to her neighbors. Um, and I went over that. I, I had a lot of advisors on this project, and I went over that with various advisors because I knew if they saw an American, this was a very local neighborhood. It was not any place that any tourists or outsiders would go. And I just knew that if they saw a, a stranger, that it would alarm everyone. And, uh, and so I had gone over with other people. I was asking them, how do I do this? And, and one colleague said to me, why don't you dress as, um, as a religious person going door to door, you know, like you're handing out pamphlets. And then that would would account for the fact that you would look like an outsider and um, and people wouldn't run. And of course, then in that case, the pamphlet would say, I'm, I'm Kathy Corcoran, I'm a journalist, I'm writing this book. I didn't end up doing that. I, I thought that was a little extreme. And I just decided, you know what, I just have to hedge my bets and go into that neighborhood as I, as I was. But I'm just sharing that story to tell you the extent to which I I really tried to stay anonymous and and protect people on the one hand, but on the other hand, make it feel safer for people to talk to me. Well, we certainly have some interesting people here. I mean, uh, is it Polo or Pollo Hernandez, uh, the Fab Four, Walter Ramirez, El Jarroco, El Gato, and of course, Diego Hernandez, the local drunk. I mean, I've just started. There are many people you you interviewed or came across or tried to tried to part of the story and are they really part of the story and uh, I think that that I part of the fascination for the book for me 
was how your theory of what happened evolves as your investigation proceeds. Oh, over what period of time was your total investigation down there? It, it was about five years going in and out because sometimes I did want to disappear and make people forget. If, if, if there was any kind of indication that somebody knew who I was, I, I wanted to just go away for a while so they would think it was an anomaly or I was just there once. It wasn't a continual, continuous five-year investigation. So um, I went there on and off for five years and I almost immediately, there was so much speculation about why she was killed. And it mostly centered on things that she had written because she was, as I mentioned earlier, very controversial. She uncovered a lot of dirt that other reporters didn't. And, um, and she was a problem for the powers that be who, who wanted to, you know, get away with things they shouldn't have been doing. And, um, I just looked at all the things that she had written and especially recently. And there was really nothing in there that seemed like a motive to me. And some people thought that, well, it was sort of a delayed retaliation for some of her stronger stories in the past. And, and I just didn't really buy that either. And so pretty early on, I came to the conclusion that she was killed for something she was working on that hadn't been published yet and that somebody wanted to prevent from being published. And that was the tricky part because she was so uh, secretive about what she was doing for two reasons. One, because she was super competitive and she didn't want to get scooped. But number two, for her own safety. She couldn't let people know what she was working on. Very much the way I had to go when I was trying to find out what really happened. Um, if you let someone know what you're working on, then all of a sudden your source is shut down and your access is blocked. And even worse in cases like she, I mean, obviously it cost her her life, but even up to that reporters would have been um, harassed. There were many cases of reporters' homes being broken into and ha having their material stolen, their computers and their notebooks. And so that would be another measure to prevent somebody from publishing. And so, um, so if you asked people what she was working on, most people said, I don't know. She never shared anything like that. But some people had some clues, but every clue was different. Every clue... Um, indicated a different story. Some people said she wasn't working on anything because she had become, she had realized that, this, that the terrain had become too dangerous. She had told one editor she was done investigating. Um, and so there were all these various answers to the question, what was she working on? And so I ended up, for me, following each one of those answers as a thread to the and that I could to see if that was the thing that she was working on. And so you see that very much in the book. That was the structure of the book is me following the threads to see what ultimately it might have been. Now, uh, I'm rather fascinated. This is a long time to be, you know, flying down to Mexico, strategizing all of this, not knowing if you're going to find anything in the end or not. Uh, 
this this kind of commitment is is enormous. You know, you've got a, you've got a life to live after all. <laughs> and uh, and yet uh, when you finally get together, you say, OK, I'm going to write this book. The the publishing houses basically weren't that interested in it. Well, I would say for the first round, the first time I tried to pitch the idea, um, and and I hadn't completed all the reporting at that point, and um, and the response was, um, well, Americans don't really care about reading about Mexico, and or uh, nobody cares about journalists, but other journalists, so they didn't really see a broad interest. In, in this kind of topic. But as, as I wrote the book, not only did the, the theory about what happened evolve, but the significance of evolved of the story beyond the whodunit. Because when I started writing this, I just wanted people to know what was going on in Mexico. I thought it was just so over the top and so normalized that I thought the, the thing that I can do as a foreign correspondent is I can bring the story to a wider audience. I mean, it's such an outrageous story and it's a very complicated story that has a lot of twists and turns. So I found it very interesting. And I just thought if I bring more attention to this, maybe something could happen. Maybe there's, there's a, a, a solution or a mitigation out there somewhere and, or a support system or something that could help these journalists. And to me, it was clearly an attempt, which is why I, I chose the Regina case to silence the free press. The country was in transition from authoritarianism to democracy. There was a new generation of reporters like her who knew the importance of a free press in, in, in a developing democracy. And there were the powers that wanted to shut them down because they were used to being able to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And I thought that was an important story as well to the rest of the world. That's what her case meant. And that's what it represented. And, um, and, and I knew from doing this case and from being a journalist, and I had been in Asia and other parts of the world, that this was something that journalists were facing around the world and it was getting worse. And it's the first time you encounter that as an American journalist, the first time I encountered it, which was long before I ever went to Mexico, it's a little bit jarring because you, as an American journalist, you start, you really take your role for granted that people accept the press and that, you know, you show up somewhere and say who you are and what you're doing. And it's just part of, part of the scenery and, and, uh, relatively safe job, not in all cases, you know, obviously, well, the, the situations change dramatically, which is what I'm going to get to. But um, so I think it's kind of jarring for American journalists who only cover their own countries, who only work domestically, what other journalists face on a daily basis around the world. And so obviously when I went to Mexico, I was living it. I was, I was covering it and I was seeing it and I, we had a threat. So we had to change the way we covered Mexico because of how dangerous it had become, even if international journalists weren't normally the targets. And so it was something I was living and it was a story I wanted to tell. And, um, what really changed 
the story for the American audience and for, for publishers and editors was when Donald Trump started attacking the press and saying that the press is the enemy of the people. And so that these tactics that are common around the world started to come home to roost in the United States. And being a reporter now or a journalist in the United States is very different right now as a result than the many decades previously where I was working for the San Jose Mercury News and working for domestic newspapers. And um, the, the number of attacks on journalists in the United States has risen dramatically in the last six or seven years. We had an investigative reporter this year murdered, I'm sorry, last year in 2022, and the suspect is the subject of his investigations. And so we're not anywhere near Mexico, but these elements have now become part of the landscape and, and the sensibility of being a journalist in the United States. And I think when that started to change, that's when people saw the relevance of the story in the United States. As you write, a society without truth is a scary place to live. It is. It's, it, and I, I lived it. I was there. I was talking to people and I saw how they had to try to survive in an environment like that. And they were preyed upon by their own government. There was money stolen. The people were disappeared. Police forces became death squads. All kinds of things happened in the face of, of no counterweight and no independent voice, which was deliberately silenced. Well, Catherine, this has been uh, terrific. I, I appreciate you coming on. Fascinating book. <laughs> fascinating book and fascinating experience of, of a journalist uh, in, a, in a strange land. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. I hope you come back and see us again. Well, thank you very much for having me and your, for your interest in the book. And I'll happily come back anytime you want. My guest today is Catherine Corcoran. The book is In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and the True Cost of Silencing the Press. It's published by Bloomsbury. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Even Saturday Night Live couldn't resist the story of a genetics engineering company trying to de-extinct the dodo bird. Based on a specimen preserved in Denmark, it isn't the only dodo around. In this 2021 interview, Blue Water Vaccine's founder and CEO, Joe Hernandez, tells us about his early quest to develop a universal flu vaccine, bringing him face-to-face so to speak, with the Oxford dodo. And of course, he funds decoding its DNA. Well, Joe, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for the invitation. Delighted to be here. Now, Blue Water is working uh, to develop a universal flu vaccine. What is a universal flu vaccine, and how is that different from today's annual flu shot? Well, today's annual flu shot involves uh, basically predicting what virus is going to be the predominant virus for that season, bringing that virus back from Asia, propagating that virus in pro- predominantly eggs. So we actually manufacture the, the, uh, the vaccine, the antigens in eggs, 
And then we killed that, um, the isolated um, uh, purified virus, and that becomes the annual vaccine. So that we do that every year. It's a process, quite labor intensive, and we have to do it every year. A universal influenza allows you to circumvent that and effectively do uh, one vaccination for a lifetime. So you would have coverage for all variants of the influenza virus moving forward. It's a real holy grail. Everybody's looking for it. We think so. Yeah, we think so. We think it, it's going to change the way we look at influenza and it's going to change humanity. And I think we will save lots of lives around the world. And we're excited about the project. So one day you were reading a paper in the prestigious scientific journal Nature by a mathematician at Oxford, Dr. Gupta, and you got very excited. What did you read? What did you do? Well, this paper was really fascinating, and I'm I'm kind of a a, a follower of um, viruses and infectivity um, thesis and theories around viruses. And well, the paper by Dr. Gupta was really controversial. It was really a mathematical model um, analyzing the diversity or the perceived diversity of influenza, and it was a it was a mathematical analysis. Dr. Gupta is actually a mathematician, and she looked at the the issue of uh, influenza diversity. Uh, as a mathematical question. So what the paper really concluded was that if, in fact, influenza was so diverse, why didn't we have a 1,000 copies or 10,000 or 100,000 different variants every year? In fact, we had one prominent virus um, as long as we had recorded the infections of influenza, and that was quite controversial. And uh, what was basically deduced from that paper was that, in fact, influenza was more conserved than we had originally uh, theorized. You use the word conserved, which is actually, it sounds English, but it's a scientific term. What do you mean that the viruses were conserved? Conserved is a, an evolutionary and genetic term that really defines uh, lack of variation throughout different generations. So as, as years uh, and generations progress, there are certain elements and genes in humans and in plants and in viruses and in bacteria that don't change over time. And that is the definition of conserved from, a, from an evolutionary perspective. We believe that because of that conserved element that the influenza has, we can in fact develop a universal influenza that will, uh, excuse me, universal influenza vaccine that will address the viruses as, as it changes throughout the different cycles every year. I know you're working on the H1 virus, the H3 virus, and flu B. How are they different from each other? Well, they're they're um, they're close uh, relatives. I would I would call them as siblings. Uh, they're variations of the same influenza. They they pop up every so often in in very random fashion, uh, but they are the same family of viruses. Uh, so we, we we just termed them differently, but they're in fact all influenzas. Do they share the same conserved regions? They share very similar regions. In, in our uh, approach, what we do is we look at conserved regions across these different variants and we make a vaccine against all of them. But in reality, um, these viruses um, are genetically um, different. They're, they're siblings, but different. So you went to Oxford knocking on doors saying, I really like this. <laughs> Blue Water really likes this. <laughs> what happened? Well, well, the story goes, I actually called the university and, and I said, listen, I read this paper. I'm intrigued by the science. I think there is some merit here. We, I, myself, would like to take this forward and form a company and I think we can build a universal flu that will transform the world. 
And of course the Oxford folks were, well, that's wonderful. Who are you? We'll call you later. Um, thank you for calling us. And I didn't hear back from them. And it wasn't until I called the scientists and said, by the way, I love your paper. I get it. Here's what it says. Uh, I really believe in the theory. Can you help? And that's really when we got motion on the, on the licensing front. Now, I understand that Oxford just didn't license this to you for, uh, uh, as a, a standard entrepreneurial proposition. Well, one of the interesting parts of this deal was that the inventor and and the folks at Oxford were really concerned and they wanted to make sure that once this technology became available, that it was available to everybody in the world. And part of our agreement was that we would make this technology available to developing countries at uh, cost plus 10%. And and we committed to that. So we're really committed to getting this thing, this vaccine, when it's ultimately developed to everybody in the world. There's a wonderful part to this story, a side story that we have to talk about, and it has to do with the dodo bird. Now, tell us, Joe, how you got seriously involved with the dodo bird, which, by the way, everyone, has been extinct for several centuries. Well, one of the the amazing um, opportunities and honors I have is to work with the scientists at Oxford, who are really amazing people individually and scientifically. And it was during one of our dinners with a a number of the faculty at Oxford that... uh, one of the scientists walked in with a tie of a dodo bird. And of course, we uh, transcended into a conversation about the dodo bird. He was impressed with my knowledge of the dodo bird, which was really limited. But nonetheless, we uh, we both realized that we had a love for this uh, extinct animal. And uh, we um, figured out that there was um, a way for us to collaborate in sequencing the genome of the dodo. Uh, it turns out that Oxford actually has one of the, the few remaining actual fossils of the dodo bird. And uh, so we, we decided to visit the bird in the morning. And, uh, and there we both agreed that we should do something to, to benefit the, um, the value of that um, species that is no longer with us. And so we decided to sequence the, 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 the genome of the dodo. What does the dodo bird look like? The dodo bird is a very um, uh, unattractive bird. Unfortunately, it's not a very beautiful bird, but it so it looks a little like a duck between a duck, a cross of a duck and a uh, and a big beal um, heron, if you would. And uh, so he's you know short to the ground and a little chubby, not utterly attractive, as I said, but really important from an evolutionary perspective. And how is that? Well, it, it's it, it really is a lesson in why animals become extinct and why nature forces certain species to no longer be. And the dodo is a clear example of that. The dodo uh, at one point in its life was able to fly and then it lost its ability to fly, became a bigger animal and uh, was predating on um, an island, Mauritius. And then uh, for whatever reason, nature turned its uh, rules on the dodo bird and the dodo became the the uh, from predator to be in the 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 uh, the animal being predated upon and became extinct. It became the prey. Correct. Yes. It became the prey. But you've been interested in the dodo bird for a long time. Absolutely. I've, I I found a dodo bird um, really uh, fascinating, and I and I have to say my fascination with the dodo bird really originated from a movie called Ice Age, which is really a kids movie, uh, and I watched that movie with my child, and I. Uh, I had to explain to him why the animal became extinct. Of course, I didn't I had limited knowledge at that point, and that was really how I became utterly fascinated with this animal. And uh, here we are trying to figure out why genetically it it it, 
it did what it did. So you are at Oxford. You're having dinner with scientists. You're trying to convince Oxford to license the technology so you can try to make this universal flu vaccine. And somehow the dodo bird comes up and he has one. (laughs) And it was like the next day, you're probably going to fly out and say, no, I'm not flying out. I'm going to go see the dodo bird. Tell us about that experience. Yes, that was it was a fascinating. uh, We were having dinner and and, uh, over a glass of wine. He proposed that I should visit the dodo early in the morning. And unfortunately, we had a very tight window at 7 o'clock before the actual museum opened. And I, I promised I'd be there. And sure enough, he shows up. He bikes his way to uh, the front door of the amazing uh, natural natural museum of, of uh, at Oxford University. And, and we walked in, and, and uh, I got to meet the, the, the actual um, dodo. Not in, not in living form, of course, but the actual fossil of the dodo, which was a very humbling experience for me because this animal had been last alive in the 1600s. Now, was it in a drawer? Was it in a cage? It was in a specialized uh, location within the museum in a very, very well-protected case, uh, cared for by a very, very um, important person who's one of the primary roles is to watch over the dodo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could volunteer to be the next guy if he wants to go on vacation or something. I, I've offered, I've offered. They they have not taken me up on that offer yet. <laughs> That's right, but they know you're serious. Whenever you make an offer, uh, it's a serious yes, offer. Yes. Well, uh, Joe, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you'll come back, keep us updated. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Delighted to be with you and uh, look forward to uh, this exciting project. Joe Hernandez is the founder and CEO of Blue Water Vaccines. For more information about the Oxford Dodo, just Google Oxford Dodo. And for more information about Blue Water Vaccines, it's on the web at bluewatervaccines.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.